viewable on Hulu. And if you've not seen this movie, please go watch it. As of the because, date of recording, it's on Hulu. We yeah, don't know if it'll as, still be there. I mean, yeah, but currently it is as of <laughs> right now. As of this moment. <laughs> go ahead speaking. and guess when right now is. <laughs> yeah. This is a podcast of two friends who watch way too much TV. We learn from the shows, and at the same time, we make fun of them. We're not experts, but we pretend to be. And after all, we watch a lot of TV. Today's show contains discussion about nothing real, except our real love for vampire slaying teens. Spoilers, if you've not seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer the movie or Buffy the Vampire Slayer the series, you might want to stop. If not, here we go. Hello, and welcome to I Watch A Lot Of, the show where we impart our vast knowledge onto you because, after all, we watch a lot of TV, and that makes us experts in everything. That's Lisa Stats. That's Chelsea Hackman. See how we did that? We introduced each other. So when you're thinking about voices, remember, that's Lisa Stats. And that's Chelsea Hackman. See? All right. So on this episode, we are going to be talking about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie, and the show. But first, what are you watching a lot of? I just finished, I'm watching a lot of Sweet Tooth, actually. It's on Netflix. It's a Netflix original. It's based on a DC comic written and drawn by Jeff Lemire. Nice. Yeah, the cast contains Christian Confrey uh, as Gus, Nanzo Nanzi as Jet. James Brolin is the narrator, and he is so great. James Brolin has a great voice. And Will Forte as Pubba, which is Gus's dad. Nice. So it is a coming-of-age post-apocalyptic story, unlike other coming-of-age post-apocalyptic stories, this is a little bit different. A sickness, uh, like a pandemic happens, similar to what we just went through. But instead of being um, us returning back to normal, at the same time this illness happens, babies are born as some sort of animal hybrid. And the world is not okay with this. Not gonna lie. Sounds like furry fan fiction. I mean, on a really small scale, I guess maybe, but they're children, so no. <laughs> I'm giving you shit. We love. Okay, I'm not gonna. No one's gonna shit on the furries. They everyone has to have a thing, and that's some people's that's, thing. We're not kink shaming here. We're not. We're not gonna yuck anyone's yum. I knew a guy who, after high school, uh, admitted to me that that he was a furry, and I was like, "Congratulations! I'm so glad you found the thing you like." I also found the thing I like. It's not that, but. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, (laughs) so the show is really good. It was produced by Robert Downey Jr. and his wife, Susan Downey. Um, I would definitely check it out. It's it's different than any post-apocalyptic show I've seen thus far. I feel like there's a lot of post-apocalyptic things happening currently. Things, sorry, shows being made, not just things happening, but shows being made currently. <laughs> also, when you said Susan Downey, I immediately in my head went Junior in my head. Like she took his whole last name, including the Junior part. That would have been great. <laughs> this is why I'm not an expert, but I just, you know. No, we are. We are experts. I'm not it's fine. But I've watched a lot of Grey's Anatomy, so <laughs> it's fine. That'll work. Um, cool. So, uh, currently, what are you watching watching a lot of? (laughs) Well, Netflix made the grave error of putting Downton Abbey on their program. Oh, I know. 
So we are rewatching yet again another time of Downton Abbey, which so. means also that like because Netflix is my their their interface works the best for my sleep schedule. I put them on when I go to sleep, so I listen to Downton Abbey really quiet while I'm sleeping. So there's just a little bit of like recognizable voices and nice music and very little startling. Yeah, I was going, I mean, I'm rewatching Downton Abbey as well. And I'm happy to be back. All right, one through 10. What do you think about Thomas? Like a three and a half. <laughs> and he only got two and a half of those points because he's queer. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, obviously. But like the character is so problematic and... There's no reason to be mean as he is. There's no reason. Because he's like conniving and like manipulative in ways that like just. So Stacy had the hottest take ever. And I'm going to share her hot take with you. I'm not going to claim this idea because it's far too galaxy brain for me. Share away. Uh, She was like, Thomas is shitty and his redemption arc is arranged to make heterosexual people think oh yeah it's understandable that he is so shitty prior to now because he's this tortured gay dude no i just think he's shitty right like they make it understandable in their heads like oh yeah of course he's shitty because of you're like waiting for the thing that he's hiding or the thing that makes him the way he is and in this case they plugged homosexual into that and like he's a tortured homosexual so of course he's been crappy for the last five seasons but no i'm sorry everyone who thought that thomas is just a dick he also happens to be homosexual but also a dick and no one in the house has a problem with him being homosexual everyone knows it and they say it in season one because they all try and tell daisy in their own ways no no he's not a ladies man no he doesn't like you he will never like he's never gonna be your baby daddy like they all try and be really careful not to say it out loud because of the legal ramifications but also they're all trying to gently tell her like he's not gonna come around so Anyway, moving on. That's what I'm watching a lot of. Let's get into Buffy because I want to hear all about what you have to say about this movie. Okay, about the movie. The movie that started it all. Well, we have to start with the movie because chronologically the show happens after the movie. Yes. Okay, so the movie Buffy the Vampire Slayer is written by Joss Whedon and was directed by a friend, Rubel Kazooie. That's such a fun name who also went on to be one of the producers on the show and Angel. What else did she make? Orgasmo. And? Tokyo Pop. Thank you. Yes. She's the director of this movie and also Tokyo Pop. Highly recommend. Fantastic. Oh, and she produced Orgasmo. Yeah, she was a producer. But, you know, neither here nor there on Orgasmo. But Tokyo (laughs) Pop, definitely a fun ride. So the notable cast in uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie, which is viewable on Hulu. And if you've not seen this movie, please go watch it. As of the date of recording, it's on Hulu. We don't know if it'll still be there. I mean, yeah, but currently it is as of... (laughs) Right now. This moment. (laughs) Go ahead and guess when right now is. (laughs) Yeah. This could be weeks from now. You could be months listening, years from now, and you will not know. But it was available on Hulu, and if you've not seen the movie, see it. It is good. It is funny. It is campy. It's a cult classic for a reason. Um, when so, did you first see this movie? Oh, God, when I was in high school. I was oh my God. Okay. 
Maybe 14. Okay. So I first saw this movie. This movie came out when I was less than 10 years old. So I saw this movie on a road trip in middle school that my family went on. I guess I was just going into middle school. So it must have been like when I was 10 or 11. And I saw it on TV in a real crappy motel. Ooh, that's fun. It had a real bad like orange streetlight that came in from outside. And we could hear everything our upstairs neighbors did in their motel room. Every detail of everything that they did. And every transaction they made. And so <laughs> I was convinced by hearing all of this noise while I was sleeping that it was definitely vampires. So I, I had a very terrifying motel evening after watching this film. I loved oh, it. Oh, okay. Um, I saw it with a friend in high school and loved it. It has an actually pretty stellar cast um, for for the 90s. Um, you've Christy Swanson has bought the Donald Sutherland the amazing Donald Sutherland as Merrick, her watcher, Amelin, which is Paul Rubens, but I just refer to him Paul Rubens because you know, why not? Uh, Lothos, which is Rudger Hauer, Pike, Luke Perry, Kimberly Hillary Swank, Benny David Arquette, the principal Murray is Stephen Root, and I love Stephen Root. He's one of my most favoriteest actors. Love him. He's so funny. Everything he touches is also- he steals every scene he's in. Baby Hillary Swank in this, like watch this movie and then go watch Million Dollar Baby. Like just blow your mind. And Ben Affleck is unaccredited as a uh, basketball player number 10. I love that for him. <laughs> so... <laughs> so... Oh, that he was a basketball player number 10 and that he was uncredited. Yeah. So the movie starts off uh, with Buffy, a cheerleader. Everything is rosy. Everything is super. She's super rich. She's the quintessential 90s Valley girl. And says, like, you know, gag me with a spoon and all of those fun trippy things that girls like that said in the 90s. And she's in her freshman year? She's No, she's a senior. She's a senior. She's a senior. That's why it's a little bit confusing for me with like Buffy when it continued because I was like, oh, wait a minute, wasn't she older? Fair. So, uh, so it follows Buffy. Get a look at her super amazing life, cheerleader, basketball boyfriend, varsity, all of those really great popular high school kid things, until she's introduced to Merrick, which uh, he's like. Um, you're a vampire slayer and she's like i'm sorry what thereby giving every creepy old man a new strategy of picking up high school girls definitely Uh, because i'm just saying an old man comes into 17 year old me and is like hey you're a vampire slayer i'm like here's the thing does vampire slaying including going back to your house or your van or what's happening and the whole time that like they're training he's training her to become a vampire slayer like they're in this like large empty like it almost looks like a banquet hall or maybe a ballroom like some like spooky mansion where he, where was, he like, works as a janitor where he was like please come back to my mansion with me and i will show you i will show you vampire skills his day job is just as like the maintenance man <laughs> he has keys it's <laughs> all the keys yeah so uh this show is really fun they do the movie is really fun they introduce some characters in great ways when we finally see paul rubin's character 
of all things he's revealed on a like a spinny carousel and it is beautiful it's middle of the night it's carousel spinning all its lights on playing its magical music and um that's how i want my vampires to hang out on carousels in the middle of the night doing spooky shit no i'm just thinking about the carousel at balboa park I'm so sad it gets boarded up at night because if it didn't, I'd be spinning around to the John Williams track the whole time. Right? I just not stop, non-stop. It'd be great. I puke. One and a half rotation. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other things that sort of like makes me laugh is the master's lair, which is this like, it's a theater. Like you've got a coffin, center stage. You've got spots upstage focusing downstage and you've got this casket bathed in red light and like sleepy red Hour. every single goth 90s person <laughs> was like hi can i buy an old theater please <laughs> candelabras everywhere like not practical sleepy time like this is not a practical vampire lair <laughs> I'm just saying, I have a background dream to buy a church and convert it into my deep, dark, gothic lair. I mean, who doesn't? Who doesn't have one of these? I, I might supplant that for an old theater. Like, probably easier to find, frankly. But not tax-exempt, which is annoying. There are a lot of questions during the movie They get, like, they're never answered. Like, where, like, the watchers come from. Or, like, how Merrick found she, like, Buffy, was she just, like, that good of a cheerleader that he like totally knew that like she was the one. Oh, I got you. I'll think Joss Whedon makes up for these shortcomings later in the show <laughs> where he does too much expositional explaining of those things. Yeah. Cause right now we're just like, what's going on? Okay, yes. cool. What's going on? Yeah. The first season of Buffy, the vampire slayer, the show becomes very expositional. We'll talk about that. So, um, but it is lots of fun, lots of gore. I mean, not really. It's not say gore. It's lots of fun, lots of jump scares. Okay, so correct me if I'm wrong. Best doubleheader ever: Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Scream One, David Arquette doubleheader movie. Yes. Done. Yeah, because uh, David Arquette's really, really fun in this. One of the things I liked most about this is Luke Perry wasn't the Hawkeye. Yeah. Luke Perry didn't play the Hawkeye. Luke Perry was funny. I wish she would have done more comedy. Um, I mean, he will forever and always be my Dylan McKay. I, I yeah, I loved, yeah, <laughs> I loved, like, I loved Dylan McKay. And I was really sad when Luke Perry passed. Was, That's your epitaph now, by the way. I'm just yeah. telling you. She loved, she loved Dylan McKay. She loved Dylan McKay. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> I'm fine with that. Alicia Stats, she loved Dylan McKay on your gravestone. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that are pretty silly about the show. Like, it's really easy for the, the movie. I don't know why I keep saying show, because it was a show. But there's a lot of things in the movie that are really silly. Like, it takes no effort for them to, like, break out of graves. Like, boop, 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 dig out. Yeah. Like, I just stick my hand up, and now I'm a vampire out of my coffin. Like, do you guys not have coffins? Where you're, you're not loved enough? I was just like, going to go into a, a very long, like, nerd explanation of, like, well, you see, uh, well, actually, when a coffin is buried, and over time, the soil redistributes. No, none of it. They're six feet under in a coffin. It should be a lot harder. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's real easy. It's real easy to get out. 
I mean, um, God, I bet they long for the 19th century when they could just ring their little bell and someone would <laughs> dig them up. Excuse me. It's tea time. Dig that sucker up. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> JK, swine flu. The one of the things that they don't I don't they didn't do in the show is that her spidey senses are her her, her lady cramps. Oh, yeah, doesn't she like double over every time she like senses a vampire? Yeah, a vampire. Like she gets, she jokes that my secret weapon is PMS. Perfect. <laughs> I mean, me too, until I had a hysterectomy. That's why they did it. The government was stripping me of my superpowers. What they didn't know is they had to remove the alpha uterus before she took over. <laughs> That's it. Isn't that like everybody's like, like issue? Well, the only reason I call my uterus the alpha uterus is that she would command other people's uteruses to do what she wanted. I agree. So if I'm a, if someone's around me long enough, they would always go onto my cycle. I would never I switch to someone else's cycle. I know. <laughs> but she cannot hurt you any longer. She didn't hurt me to begin with. She just made us blood sisters. It was fine. She was destroyed in a pathology lab some years ago. <laughs> Or was she? So the movie is really funny. Pike and uh, Buffy team up to essentially slay the senior class. I remember like some triple handspring situations. Like, yeah, I'm really yeah. sad that like Pike didn't make it into the show because he was really fun. Oh. No. But you know, it's fine. One of the things that it stuck out for me and for the '90s was how dated Lothos was yeah what a dated vampire look i mean it was approaching like those 70 the 70 style dracula with the frilly shirt and the medallions and the cabs and the high collars yeah which i was really sort of surprised at because paul rubin's character is the exact opposite of that he's in a leather jacket he has like long hair very lost boys he's totally lost boys like there's a lot of conflicting a lot of conflicting going on but i love i love paul rubens he has by far the most amazing death scene in the history of screen can you do an interpretive dance of it please i would love to do an interpretive dance of it but for our listeners they won't be able to see that because um they're just gonna have to take your word for it no that's the it's best kind of podcast magical it's magical i'm telling you all right now there's an interpretive dance happening and it's incredible the one thing that gets me every time that he dies is the oh ah eh. and then he like at one point he looks back <laughs> at christy swanson to like see if she's looking at him and she is and then he goes back to like dying um, <laughs> it is the silliest thing and by far the most <sighs> my most favorite like Wee herman moment yeah, you know that Paul Rubens did that on purpose. Yeah, and it's so good. It is so funny. I'm just... A brief moment of direction. Joss Whedon was just like, just be yourself. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> and he goes, ha <laughs> He doesn't, though. He, he didn't do that in that movie. The one thing I also think is fun is that the final showdown of this all sort of takes place in the Rose Parade graveyard? Like what? Yeah. Like I don't understand. Like, like that's where vampires hang out. They like like roses and like the two Rose reasons. Parade? 
one, it smells delicious. And two, because you have to have a LA Easter egg that only people in LA know so that they all feel special and spend a lot of money to go see your movie. Oh. LA loves self-referential. Like anything you make that references LA, if you make it actually reference LA, so people in LA are like, oh, I remember, I've been to that thing. How do I know? Because I live with someone from LA. Nothing makes her happier than something that actually depicts something that actually happens in Los Angeles. That is fun. I do love that they went through the graveyard of all of the uh, Rose Parade floats, which happens in beautiful downtown Pasadena, California. Yep. Um, I don't like it just it was one of the things I was like, why would you hang out here? Like, is this where vampires hang out? Have I, have I been doing this wrong the whole time? Have I been looking for my vampire the wrong way? Should I go down to the Rose Parade? Like, wait, or they keep the floats and be like, hello? Yeah, I guess maybe we should move our, like, graveyard movie nights to the Pasadena Rose Parade graveyard. Yeah. We should call Hollywood Forever Cemetery and tell them we're changing venues. <laughs> oh, so much fun to do that. Yeah. For our listeners. Do you ever have a chance? For our listeners, if you've not been to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery on Santa Monica Boulevard and seen a movie projected on the mausoleum during the summer, it is one of the coolest, best kept LA secrets. Bring some food, bring some chairs, get comfy. It'll be a lot of fun. Bring a cute little picnic basket. Yep. Make your shit happen. It's so much fun. Oddly enough, I went and saw Pee Wee's Big Adventure there. There you go. Look at that. I'm trying to remember what I saw there. I feel like it was a Burton film because that is how early 2000s we rolled. But I don't know if it was... Might have been Corpse Bride? I love the Corpse Bride. I don't remember, actually. Hmm. But yes, definitely go check out a movie at Hollywood Forever's movie nights during the summer. They're incredible. So it was... Overall, the movie, the movie is definitely worth a watch. It's campy. It's from the 90s. Like, you have to sort of expect some, like, tropey, campy shenanigans. And it delivers. Yeah. And uh, as far as vampire movies up to that point, it broke some molds. So, yeah. And the vampires definitely did. Like, they also look different in the movie than they do from the show. Because yes. the vampires in the movie um, are pretty much just teeth and like little ears, a little bit of ear stuff. Also, some pale, stuff. some some pancake makeup. Yeah. And also, I will say that like uh, Joss Whedon himself is pretty problematic. However, I can pretty problematic. Also- That's understandable. Right, very problematic, and I can also acknowledge that some of the ideas that he pushed. And that other people were also involved in making. Broke some molds. Did some things differently. And some of his early work was really campy and still managed to push some different ideas and a different way of looking at teenagers and uh, change the way that we pursue and, and portray teenagers. Yeah. So, yeah. It's it's really hard to get into Buffy the movie and like look at them as teenagers because they're clearly not. <laughs> Right, that whole the whole idea that like people in their mid to late twenties are playing teenagers is like no 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 stop this stop this immediately. So I mean that's Riverdale the, 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 that suspension of disbelief is a little bit frustrating, but at the same time I mean all movies do that. The other option is to pay teenagers, but then all of the child labor laws apply, and that makes it really hard to do ten hour shooting days. So 
<sighs> and we've seen time and time again that acting as a career is not great for young people. No. It's not even particularly great for older people. There's a lot of things about acting as a job that are very difficult on people emotionally and physically and um, as far as mental health goes. So yeah, and fame's a bitch. Yeah, and I, I, we, as we've seen with like the Stranger Things cast, they're getting more and more outspoken about the ways that it's affecting them, and um, and that's really important. So, uh, I understand it is difficult to like accept that kids in their teens are being played by people in their twenties, which then the teachers have to be played by people in their fifties to make sure that they look older enough. Yeah, and then you have like so you're you're sort of making this exaggerated trope of how it is to be in school but the uh, alternative is potentially harmful to children so that that also becomes a bit of, a, of an issue um i think the show like marvel's runaways i think actually had teenagers in it or people who are very close to still being in their teens um and so we'll see how that goes and stranger things obviously had children in it so and all of them have been very outspoken about what fame has done to their personal lives and it's not been good so we still we love a millie bobby brown though as we do so let's talk about buffy the vampire slayer the show the show i love the show so it's available on hulu currently as of this recording who knows if it's not anymore please go buy every single one of the dvds if you don't own all seven seasons of Buffy, your DVD or Blu-ray collection is incomplete. I don't own all of them. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so I spent most of the 90s and early 2000s watching and re-watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I took no notes because I didn't have to. That's fine. You don't need notes. All right. So originally aired March 10th, 1997. How do I know? I was watching it. It was middle school. I was watching as well. So I was there and I was like, this show's coming out and I'm gonna watch it. So the first episode is a two-parter because Joss Whedon likes to uh, break molds and can't keep it together. So why write one pilot when you can have two pilots? It was split into a two-parter. It was twice as long on TV. So you did have like a to be continued, but it aired the same day. So you didn't have like, one episode and another episode you had one episode a long commercial break and then the second episode it was like a tv event premiere event so he took up a very large time slot on march 10th 1997 uh, during which i was seated in front of my television first episode you meet buffy she comes to sunnydale california which is nowhere but sunnydale is meant to be a sort of stand-in for palmdale which if you live in a suburb of it's uh, supposed to be in the boonies Right. So it's supposed to be pretty far outside LA um, because her mom, who is played by oh, a Sutherland, but it's a K and I can't remember if it's Kathy or Christy. Someone help me. Christine Sutherland? Kathy Sutherland. Brenda. Brenda, help me. Save me. Magical Save me, Brenda. Brenda is our producer for those of you listening. Yeah. We're not just magically saying the word Brenda. Christine Sutherland. So if you remember, there was a Sutherland in the movie, too. Yep. Donald. Right. Yeah. Donald Sutherland played Merrick, right? He did. Okay. So her watcher in the movie is played by Donald Sutherland. Her mother in the show is played by Christine Sutherland. Oh, that's so fun. Right. So we see the Sutherland family. It's very Easter eggy. And that is something Joss Whedon is just a series. His existence is a series of Easter eggs. 
there is nothing outside of Joss Whedon but referential humor. It's all he loves. And it's like, if you look into a Joss Whedon something, it's referencing something else that he's made or something else he likes. There's a lot of references to the movie, especially in episode one, or I guess episode one and two. I'm going to refer to them as both of them as episode one. It works for me. Combination of Welcome to the Hellmouth and The Harvest. The first of which being directed by Charles Martin Smith. The second one by John T. Kretschmer. Does it matter? Do I know who those people are and what else they've done? No. And neither of them particularly does a great deal of directing later on. So episode one opens. Buffy's arriving. Sunnydale, California. There was a reference to her having burned down her previous gym, which in the movie was like, she killed all of the senior classes. Oh, there's no actual fire in the movie. So she doesn't set anything on fire in the movie, but they say it in the show, like that was why she left. Yeah. However, probably not because they're going to say that the whole senior class got murdered. Nobody pay attention to that. It's fine. Who cares? It's a small detail. I guess it was supposed to be set on fire in the movie. It was in the original script. They ended up not including it. Not wasn't actually a thing. And then in the show, they mention it as like, so Whedon obviously was like writing the show as a after the movie situation. So yeah. I also think some changes were made in the movie. Like she's older in the movie than she's meant to be according to the show. So like she's a senior in high school, but here she comes into Sunnydale as I believe an incoming sophomore or an incoming freshman. And I can't remember which it is because I don't think she spends all four years in high school, but I truthfully, it's a little bit difficult to tell, frankly, with TV time. Um, And I was going through a lot because I was in middle school. So who knows? The show had seven seasons. All of them are good. Um, Because she does. Angel too. I mean, it's been Angel, which I watched. I watched watched them all. You watched it because David Boreanaz. No. Well, you didn't watch it for Charisma Carpenter. No, I did not watch it for Charisma Carpenter. I did watch it for David Boreanaz. Yeah, I thought so. You know, I ran into him once. No, and, like physically? Yeah, like I physically ran him <laughs> Ran him down. No, I bumped into him at uh, Six Flags. Incredible. A million years ago. Just Did, Were you just injured by his jawline? I was. I yeah. tripped over it. I was like, oh my God, so you're so beautiful. <laughs> just tripped over his good looks. Whoops. Yeah, I was like, oh, excuse me. <laughs> oh my God, I totally fell over. What's happening? <laughs> So when I was in middle school and high school, I had a common conflict in my mind of, do I want to be him or do I want to fuck him? And I didn't know the difference. So most of the time it was, I actually wanted to be them. I was attracted to the maleness in certain men and like uh, in the way that they express themselves. And Angel was one of those men, not David Boreanaz, but Angel. This theory was tested when I watched all of Bones. (laughs) Also started. And it took me about seven seasons to get me to stop thinking of him as Angel. That's a lot of seasons for you to be like, that's Angel. <laughs> yeah, what can I say? I'm a creature of habit. She shows up in Sunnydale. She's in high school. She's like, there's obviously some jokes that Whedon wants to get out there early. Like the fact that the principal is interested in her feelings to a level that's absurd. And start saying really absurd things about how like he's going to tear up her record and he tears the card right in front of her. And then he looks at what it actually says and mentions that, oh, and then you lit the gym on fire. And then he spends the rest of the meeting nervously taping the card back together 
with his tape on his desk. So he's like, we're going to wipe that slate clean. Never mind. That slate can never be clean and like puts it back together. So that was a good moment. Her mom also is sort of a one dimensional joke about Gen X parenting. Which is funny because in the movie, her and her father are always going somewhere. They're always late. Right. And this is like, the whole Gen X joke, right? Is yeah. like all the kids are, kids are fine. They'll be fine. Last yeah. key kids. Let them be whatever they are. It, there was an amount of wealth there that made that like more reasonable. Yeah. So her mom in the show is some sort of art dealer and is like had to travel around until they could find somewhere that would take Buffy, like find a school that would take her after her record of burning down the previous school. So they had to move all the way out to Palmdale. Sorry, Sunnydale. There's a little bit of like... Her mom talks about like having read about this, like I've read about teenagers and I'm reading a lot of books and she does a lot of like outside research that is not just listening to her daughter, which is really interesting. And I identified with intensely <laughs> as, as a teenager because um, my mom did some reading of, of parenting books when my younger brother was born and, and took one, none of the advice in them and two, never listened to us. So like, there wasn't a lot of like, why you could just ask, but no. So <clears throat> that was fun. Um, and then she meets there at high school at Sunnydale High. She meets Xander, who uh, hurts himself when he sees her because he goes into like a arousal. My blood's not going to any of my normal senses space and skateboards into a railing. Like boys do. Right in front of Willow, who is dressed like an Amish person. <laughs> I forgot. Yeah, at the beginning they, of the show. Yeah, so they like upped the ante on Willow being an overdressed nerd. Pretty much, like maxed it out, hit it as hard as they could. Later, Willow does a great deal of adapting and you know gets an incredible witchy fashion sense that makes everybody fall down over themselves, especially all of the lesbians, of which I am included. So adorable nerd who also hacks computers in the early ages of the internet, where hacking computers in consisted of opening a door. How did you hack that computer? Well, I just asked. Excellent. Like that, no one knew that that was a thing to be considered concerned about. So there was a lot of easy hacking to be done, and she did it. She did it in the coroner's office. She did it to the school computers. She did it to the city to find everything that they needed and couldn't get in time. So there was a lot of problem solving with Willow hacking, which was the, what, the, the sort of early function of Willow was an information technologist. Uh, early function of Xander was, I laugh in the face of danger, then I hide until it goes away. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is what Xander does. I love his arc. He goes from being like this incredibly self-centered, uh, easily compromised, insecure boy to being a very like centered, grounded man wearing an eye patch. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's very like quacky comic relief in the beginning and ends up being like a really stunning support system by the end of the seventh season and by the comic book which continues into I think it wraps up in season 12 in the comic books um, which continued post-series and the other thing is is I think all of them sort of go through that like major character like all all of them go through those character changes and become almost like battle-worn I very literally battle-worn yeah, yeah. there's the, I mean the series 
the series of episodes after the musical episode are some of the hardest episodes to watch of any television show. And the fact that they occur after the musical episode is um, pretty intense. So like Grey's Anatomy has a musical episode. Um, there's a lot of shows out there that did a musical episode. I think Riverdale did a musical episode. Buffy has a musical episode. It sort of became a trope in the late 90s, early 2000s to do a musical episode. House has a musical episode. House has a musical episode. Exactly. They like still do musical episodes. Lucifer did a musical episode. Yeah. Last I think season. Bones did a musical episode, I believe. Uh, there were some people who sang and some people who don't. That, that's always my favorite thing about uh, Scrooge's. Uh, Scrubs also did it. Yep, Scrubs did a musical episode. It's my favorite thing about musical episodes is like when you can tell who can actually sing and who cannot. Uh, yeah, I'm talking directly to Sarah Ramirez of Grey's Anatomy. If she sang Chasing Cars at me, I would die. I do love her though. Honestly, she's incredible. And they her. just revisited that song. Like that song premiered on Grey's Anatomy and later on they use it over and over again. They just used it recently in another episode of so every time oh i totally forgot to mention this earlier the whole first season of Grey's anatomy is like a it's like a montage of tegan and sarah and metric yeah which is like yes absolutely which are artists that i believe are either from or centered in the pacific northwest yeah um but yeah they're mostly women artists so uh, they did a really good job i think first season in in buffy the vampire slayer so joss whedon gave himself this really interesting little like space so they have this club in town a club it's an 18 and over space called the bronze yes and you go to the bronze when it's in the bad side of town says cordelia right before saying that the bad side of town is a half a block from the good side of town they don't have a lot of town to work with so essentially they're like palmdale's kind of a little shithole and we have like three streets that suck and so on those three streets there is I, Palmdale and Sunnydale are the same, in fact. But yes, yeah, Sunnydale. Um, they <laughs> so in Sunnydale, there's like this warehouse that the Bronze is in, and it has like standing bistro tables and a little stage, and there's musical groups there, and they spend a lot of screen time, frankly, on the music groups because they're local groups that are usually undiscovered. So like, Whedon made a point to make sure that there were undiscovered locals that were showcased there. And then later some bigger groups also got showcased here. Uh, Amy Mann was on that stage at some point. There was um, the band that one of the later characters is in, uh, Dingo Ate My Baby. Um, there's That's actually based on a band who did all of their music um, that Alison Hannigan brought to Joss Whedon and was like, you should use these guys. You should talk to them about licensing. And then that became the music for Dingo Ate My Baby. That band's name, band called Four Star Mary. Cool. Yeah. So Dingo Ate My Baby, which is the band that um, Seth Green's character later is in, is actually Four Star Mary, who Allison Hannigan brought to Joss Whedon and was like, hey, these guys should be on the show. And he was like, great. Sounds awesome. Um, there's a lot of really cool music talent. Anyway, so one of my favorite things about the show is there like he used it as a platform to showcase local artists which made it very cool people spend uh most of the first episode asking buffy about la things uh which she doesn't say anything about but they always ask her about it like because la is like this fancy and far away place where all the fancy people are and um palmdale <clears throat> river <clears throat> sunnydale is um the 
the suburb of that that is pretty far out in the boonies and so there's a lot of idealism thrown at LA um there's supposedly this like big bad vampire and there's gonna be a harvest and they set up the whole season's conflict in the first episode uh, now we have to talk about Mr. Giles who's her watcher Giles I love Giles I love, I love everything Giles. that man's done like Repo the genetic opera <sighs> Be still my beating heart. I Honestly. love him in Repo the Genetic Opera. If you've not seen Repo the Genetic Opera, please go see it. Sarah Brightman's in it. She's incredible. Yeah, you haven't lived if you've not seen Repo. And Paris Hilton's in it. Who <laughs> we love, I guess. <laughs> no, she was she wasn't terrible in it. She sings. In a wild change of pace, she was not terrible. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that is played uh, by Anthony Stewart Head, and he's great. And uh, I think the the master is actually Mark Metcalf in a bunch of makeup. Really? So, yeah, he was in Animal House in the beginning. He was always like angry authoritarian characters in like music videos and stuff through the 90s. Mark Metcalf was like, he was on Seinfeld. It was one of his main roles was like on Seinfeld. If you're into Seinfeld, which I'm not, but I do know this. He was the maestro who was like the conductor that Elaine dated. He's the the master in this episode. Who's this vampire who's like this very old vampire. And their vampire makeup is really interesting. It's basically super animalistic, but not like a furry, but they have like an extra wrinkly forehead ridge. Mm-hmm. And, and um, usually some sort of like, nose prosthetic and then a little bit of cheekbone prosthetic to really bring up their cheekbones um and then obviously pointy teeth but not just the two fangs they have like sort of more pointy teeth throughout their mouth so they do a lot more um animalistic sort of makeup in the show than they did say like in the movie where it was just basically a set of vampire fangs and some white pancake makeup and voila a lost boy (laughs) a lost boy is made um, you do meet briefly a mysterious and handsome stranger named David Boreanaz, who is a wee baby in this. He's so beautiful. So gorgeous and beautiful and so young. And he plays Angel. And you don't know his name until I think the next episode, till the second part of the, the pilot. And then the like bad guy that the master is commanding is named Luke, which is my older brother's name. So it was really disconcerting. <laughs> I was like, yeah, Luke is the bad guy. You're correct. <laughs> Fuck that guy. So uh, we were at a particularly fraught time in our relationship. So when the bad guy was named Luke, I was like, hey, this show has my whole heart. <laughs> the thing I will say for Joss Whedon's shows is that they always have a very natural sounding slang and the actors deliver it very naturally. So Whereas Buffy the movie was sort of like a valley girl trope. Mm -hmm. He really refined the show into not mimicking current slang, but guiding slang by making it fun and interesting and clever. So the way that they talk to each other sounds the way that kids talk. And it's markedly different from how the adult characters talk. I also think that in the show, the character Buffy is far more realized than the character in the movie. Yeah. I think she's more grounded. Yeah. I think that the character development that he did with all of the characters on that show are like really quite phenomenal because everybody has 
a background story that you care about. Yeah. And you know immediately the things that she values because when Cordelia tries to make friends with her in the beginning because she's beautiful, because she's stylish, whatever, and she's from LA, so she's obviously cooler than anyone in Sunnydale. She makes like these references and tries to make inroads. And then when Cordelia is mean to Willow in front of, or dismissive even to Willow in front of Buffy, Buffy's turned off. And while she doesn't take a strong stance and say like, that wasn't cool, which we wish she would have, Mm. she does go to Willow and immediately say like at lunch goes and asks if she can sit with her because she wants to hang out with her and like treats Willow very well. Yeah. You can immediately see that Buffy has a whole set of values that are not necessarily in they're not as focused as on fitting in as one might think. Yeah. And you have to assume that because of what happened in LA is when changed her, changed her being. So. Yeah. Yeah. And she does pursue cheerleading in the first season. Um, There's an episode with a, a cheerleading tryout that goes terribly wrong as one of the girls is parent is a witch and has sep- has uh, switched bodies with her in order to try and relive her glory days as a cheerleader. And there's a lot of flack that Buffy gets for trying to be a cheerleader, for wanting to try out, even though she wasn't under any sort of spell influence. That isn't ever really addressed. Giles makes fun of her for it. Uh, Willow is supportive because Willow's always supportive. But later on, Amy, who's the other girl who is trying to be a cheerleader, also says some pretty derogatory things about cheerleading that are never really, she then apologizes, but it's never really over, like, overall never really addressed that people saw this choice as being contrary to Buffy's values, even though it isn't. Yeah. Um, Buffy's obviously concerned with community service and is interested in being attractive and likes to be Um, part of a group, likes to belong as part of a team. There's a lot of feelings there that where she's trying to not feel quite so isolated and that that doesn't get her, that gets pretty negatively uh, reacted to by by a lot of people. So that part was a little bit hard when I was watching again, like the the way I watched that when I was a teenager, I was like, yeah, fuck cheerleading. But as an adult, I'm like, why? Why fuck cheerleading? People can cheerlead. It's fine. Let it go. Yeah, you're like, people can like things. And it's because cheerleaders were mean to me. But like, yeah, okay. Well, cheerleaders were not... mean to me too. So. They weren't mean to me because they were cheerleaders. They were mean to me because they were assholes. Yeah. Yeah, so the show's seven seasons long. It has a lot of really good character arcs. It has one of uh, its most successful episodes was the silent episode. It's called Hush, which features a creature who feeds on sa- feeds on sound. Yeah. And ends up being destroyed by sound. If you haven't seen that episode, it won a ton of awards. It's awesome. The musical episode is called Once More with Feeling. Which I love. I think it's in season five. It's pretty far down there. I mean, they deal with so much. And it was, I think it was the first show I saw on regular primetime television that featured a character who was homosexual. It was. And for whom that was not the only thing they were. Yeah. Like it was outside of the context. Like it wasn't a queer as folk. It wasn't an L word. It was before those. And it was a, uh, I got queer as folk was probably actually already there, but it was essentially, it was something where that, that was not all the character was. It was one of the things a character was. And despite all of Joss Whedon's terribleness, uh, I am always going to be grateful to the writing team that wrote that into the story 
and to Allison Hannigan and, and Amber Benson for playing Tara and Willow the way that they did, or Willow and Tara the way that they did. Um, because as a we non-binary, strange little queerling, seeing queer people on TV that were not- important. That you didn't have to fill in the lines to make them queer. Like Xena was always going to be queer for me, but no, the Raimis were never overt, which was annoying. Uh, the fact that the show and the producers and the writers for the show made that overt was super important. I think and it came at a time too, where like it was important for the young teenagers to see somebody like them. Yeah, it's always important. Representation matters so much. Mm -hmm. um, and the notion that when you're trying to form who you want to be, that there's some some version of that out there for you to experiment with or to express through or to watch and, and be involved in and to take in is super important. Yeah. You know, for every uh, trans person that's watching Grey's Anatomy right now and sees a trans character who that's not all they are, but it's definitely part of who they are, an important part of the story, and watch them be the hero, that's incredible. There's also another really great trans actor that's um, on 911 Lone Star. Oh. And they, have, they don't make it a uh, primary aspect of their character. They just, they're just trans. And that also does a really good job with like other bits of diversity and one of the firefighters is is muslim and she wears a hijab and it's just part of who she is it's not anything anybody talks about it's not a big deal it's refreshing to see these sorts of yeah these sorts of stories being told um in ways that like they have we they haven't been told before i mean every year the world just seems to get a little more tolerant and, and not just tolerant it seems like people are celebrating each other more and really I think pushing so those stories into the limelight in ways that are really important i like that um did you watch promising young woman mm -hmm. laverne cox was just in it as a woman yep so much so she wasn't a trans woman she was just a woman who owned a cafe it yep. wasn't even mentioned it wasn't a problem it wasn't a source of anxiety or conflict She's there and she's a trans woman and she's just in the show. Like she's in the movie just as a woman. And the fact that that's, it wasn't even in the discussion of her character or what her character was about uh, shows how far we've come because it didn't have to be. Yeah. It didn't have to go, like she wasn't a woman with an asterisk. She was a woman in that show or in that movie. And I think that that's incredible. I do too. I think that as um, more time passes, it's not more, unbelievable. It's hopeful. It is. It's hopeful. And I think as more time passes, we'll see more stories and there'll be more growth and change and like good things. It's definitely a show that like a lot of fucking people watched and still very strong feelings for. Yeah. Like I go at Comic-Con, I go the last day. So even if you don't get everyday passes, I always want a Sunday pass because I want to go the last day on Sunday. The last thing they do at con is they do a giant group viewing of the sing-along to the musical episode. Oh, that's fun. And it's the best part of Comic-Con and I love it. And like, that's incredible. You know, you're in a room with like 450 Buffy fans who all know all the words and have callbacks and have, all kinds of jokes they shout out and just it's so much fun it's so much fun that like stacy and michaela hadn't watched a lot of uh buffy and we went to that and they were both interested in watching or re-watching so it's it's a lot of fun if you don't if you go to comic-con please sub sunday last time of the day it's like sunday at 4 p.m 
go and watch the Buffy sing-along. It's put on by the Joss Whedon fan club. That's cool. Um, let's see. If I have... Do I have a favorite? Do you have a favorite episode? I Okay, so I have a couple of favorite episodes. Okay, because the musical one is my favorite episode. It is an incredible episode. It is. Not going to lie. It has emotional complexity. Um, they're definitely doing a lot of like triage and there's a lot of misunderstandings and misconceptions about what Buffy's going through, which I find those kinds of misunderstandings really important, um, and, and really impactful. So I liked it a lot. Um, spoiler alert, Buffy has died and then was resurrected. And the whole team thinks that they saved her from a hell dimension. What they didn't realize that when she died, she went to heaven and she doesn't reveal it until the end of the episode where she tells them that she was in heaven and they all have this sinking debt, like dread feeling that they pulled her out of heaven back into this terrible conflict because they couldn't stand the idea of being without her. And they made it about this whole idea of there being a hell dimension because they couldn't manage grief and grieving her and it's such an important comment on grief and how we project ourselves onto other people's processes and it's such a stark moment when she comes back and saves dawn and saves the day yet again and is so angry and is so sad and uh it's in in the next two episodes after that are equally rough and it's incredible and it's just great acting and great writing and i think they did an awesome job I liked Brenda's favorite episode is the Halloween episode where they turn into what they're dressed up as. Oh yeah. That was really fun. That was a really good Halloween episode. I think Xander becomes like a soldier and like gets all authoritative and that makes Cordelia all moist in her panties, which I think is hilarious. And then, but sadly Willow becomes a ghost. Mm. So Willow is as invisible as she has always felt, but underneath her ghost costume, she was dressed up very sexy because she was trying to dress up for um I think for Xander at that point and so she's dressed up in a way that she's incredibly uncomfortable with but was trying to be brave and in her moment of being brave she's ironically invisible and so there's a lot there that's very um very very hard um yeah and they all like retain some piece of that inside of them because it was always there so like Xander retains some part of this authoritative decision making soldier man and Willow always retains the fear that she's invisible yeah so those pieces are really really important I think Buffy gained some vulnerability in that episode that was really cool I really like the episode Hush because the gentlemen are very scary it was a very scary episode. And there's also a really funny motion moment where Buffy is trying to pantomime stabbing someone with a stake. And it looks like she's giving someone a hand job. <laughs> she's doing the quick jerk. Uh, and it's really fucking funny. It's not the slow jerk. She does the quick jerk. And then everyone looks at her like, what? And then she like picks up a stake and does it again. They're like, oh, okay. You're not just like, but it's fucking quick jerk it, ma'am. That's super funny. I thought that was a equally scary and funny episode the episode where willow becomes dark willow oh um and the episode after that so this is the episode where tara dies and then willow decides that nothing matters and is just out for revenge are terrifying and heartbreaking and um that those were big impact for me yeah I really love Spike, and I know that you don't. Mm-mm. It's not that I don't like Spike as a character. I don't like Spike and Buffy together, and I don't like that they get shipped. And he does get a little bit like 
aggressive toward the end but yeah <laughs> i liked him i always liked him i loved him and drusilla i loved the 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 odd couple that he and uh angel are um their dynamic is fun even when they go on to like angel the show and and james marsden was on that uh as spike and I always love how they interact. It's hilarious. It's they're like a more fun version of Lestat and Louis from yeah. the interview with the vampire. Yeah, they're fun. Yeah, less tortured and homosexual, and more um, just sort of see their lot in life differently. Yeah, which I think is is interesting. Mm-hmm. And I like them. I like and I like Spike as a character. I just really didn't like that they pushed for one for him to like trespass on Buffy's consent the way he did. Yeah. Uh, and then to make that be something that turns into some sort of weird, twisted relationship. I didn't love that either. Me either. It's important to show abusive relationships, but I don't think they were clear enough on the fact that that's abusive. So there's a great deal of the fan base that thinks that's the favorite relationship of theirs. That's the best oh. relationship in the show. And they, they ship Buffy and Spike oh. because they like Spike because of whatever. And they also really liked them together, which just tells me they kind of like problematic sexuality and aggression, but that's fine. I guess for me, it was a little bit much. And I, I had a really hard time because I have a hard time with uh, sexual assault episodes. And I don't think Joss Whedon is particularly qualified to be talking uh, about sexual no, assault. I, I agree with you. I do, do not think he is qualified either <laughs> to be talking about sexual assault. His problematic viewpoints on sexual assault may have uh, been accidentally written into this show a little bit. Um, and I know he didn't write every episode. So the writers of the show also, I think, made some mistakes when it came yeah. to Buffy and Spike. Um, because it gave a voice to a very problematic faction of male fans, of men fans, mm-hmm. um, and men who are fans of shows like this, who get themselves a problematic fave, uh, can make a real nuisance for women who are fans. I agree with you completely. Like, there's going to be a whole bunch of dudes who are really into the Darkling from Shadow and Bone, and it's going to make me really upset because he's truly a like rapey piece of crap. Uh, he's like he's truly supposed to be the thing that you don't want power to be in the hands of Uh he's like the evil you never want to become more powerful and uh, there's going to be some dudes who are edgy and into that and that always bothers me but i guess the creators of a show can't control that so no what i like about spike is his love of english punk and i loved him and drusilla together Uh um i loved his ingenuity he was always really squirmy like he managed to survive so many things yeah he got out of everything he squished his way out of everything which i think was really important like he's he's looks like an absolute fool but he's not he's pretty smart he's survived hundreds of years and i think it's important when he mentions that the person who taught him to be this awful was angel Mm -hmm. so while we're all you know they make enough time for us to all be in love with angel and then be like surprise he's actually the worst and then you get to meet the worst Mm -hmm. Uh, and jealous and you get to see how all that goes and that's really fun so but which was just uh, like you didn't believe any of it just david boreanis just seems too sweet he just seems too sweet to play a bad guy but he's like such a kind of a dick in the beginning uh, kind, kind of, of like, but it's oh. like okay i think my favorite character is probably willow i loved willow through the whole thing and into the comic books which i also read i liked those as well 
Willow just turns into this, goes from being the shy person who knows some stuff into being just a, an absolute powerhouse of a human being with also gay. I said to plug in my computer. Um, yeah, I the not just the relationship with Tara and how that goes, but like her relationship to magic, all the ways that they talk about substance abuse with mm -hmm. magic as the parallel. And then the way that she sort of evolves from being this like quiet, shy nerd who has to go away whenever somebody looks at her, who she likes into someone who likes fights for and makes a relationship with a werewolf someone who transitions into like lets herself feel things for a woman so she's like key bisexual representation mm -hmm. uh, tara is really the lesbian willow is bisexual and um because nothing about her relationship with tara on purpose nothing about that relationship nullifies anything she feels for seth green's character oz i think willow's uh my fave and in the comic book, she's just incredible. So Terry uh, Dressbach was a costume designer for both Buffy, the TV show, and Outlander. So this all makes sense, and I'm bringing it back. <laughs> so you know. I can't wait for us to talk about Outlander. Oh, no. So <laughs> that means I have to watch Outlander. Yes. Yes. Oh, God. Outlander. I'm in Droughtlander right now. Droughtlander is that the space between Outlander series or yeah seasons? Yep. Oh, that's so sad. You know it's so good though. Does Outlander take place in Palmdale, California? Yes, it does. It does. <laughs> um, in Scotland, the Scottish Highlands uh, of Palmdale. Scotland and the Scottish Palmdale. Highlands of Palm Palmdale. Um, <laughs> the Scottish Moors, which is Palmdale. The beautiful moorlands that is Palmdale, California. <laughs> Oh I'm sorry, Palmdale. I'm laughing at you, not with you. It's fine. I had family that used to live out there. I have I I have only driven through Palmdale. Oh no, no, no. I did drive there a couple of times because I had uh a job I had jobs out there some from time to time doing like henna parties and stuff. The people out there know how to party. But uh the rest of the time I just drove through. I went to a wedding there. My cousin got married. Oh, nice. I went to the Big Cat Sanctuary in Rosemont? Rosemead? Rosemead. Rosemead. There it is. Thank you. Yeah, there's a Big Cat Sanctuary out there. So I went and Tiger King did up out there. We should totally do a Tiger King episode. I, I avoided Tiger King on purpose. It was a train wreck. Okay. Uh, the funny thing is about like just just on the Tiger King kick for just a second. I saw a trailer for the show probably a week or two weeks before the show aired. Like I was expecting it. I was waiting for it. I was so excited. I was like, I knew what I was getting into. I was I was ready. And then everybody else got a wind of like how amazing this show of a train wreck was that we all sort of indulged in Tiger King for like a hot 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 second so by by train wreck you mean cultural phenomenon yes yes cultural phenomenon <laughs> i may i may crumble and step into the pile of trash that is tiger king i, I might take that for the team <laughs> <laughs>
but I'm. Uh, you have to choose, Outlander or Tiger King. Outlander. All right, so you get you get one. You get to make me watch one show I don't want to watch per quarter. <laughs> so yes. this for Q3 2021, I will watch Outlander. Yes, I'm gonna make a whole list of shows, and I'll just wait that. Yeah, you can plan out the next five years of shows. Yeah, I'm going to. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so that was Buffy the show versus Buffy the movie. And we are all out of time. Because if we took more time, I don't know that I would be able to upload this file. No, you probably could. I mean, we we completely left out Angel. We could go back. Should we go back? All right, let's go back. We've got Angel to manage. (laughs) No, please, God. (laughs) Please like and subscribe and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on the gram at I Watch A Lot Of Podcast. Or check out our website at IWatchALotOf.com. Come say hello. Hey, and let us know if you want us to go back to do Angel, because we will. We will. Don't Don't you dare us. We will do it. Yeah. And then you'll have to join us next time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Join us next time. We hope to see you. I mean, hear from you. I mean, who knows? We hope to interact with you in some way. Later. Bye. Thanks. Bye. (laughs)